Church, say together, amen. You can have a seat. Thanks for being here. Welcome to Bayou City Fellowship. Turn your Bible to Colossians chapter 2. couple of announcements uh, would be a little repetitive. You're going to hear these again quickly, but I just wanted to give them to you personally. Uh, um, this Tuesday night is our um, women's event called Rise. We just do it a few times a year. It's so special to us, and we want to make sure that every lady is with us uh, this Tuesday night. Uh, we have the incredible fortune and privilege uh, of having Beth Moore uh, be a part of our family here at Bayou City Fellowship. I get the double privilege of not just being her pastor, but also being her son-in-law. And, uh, Beth has an amazing ministry and is one of the most anointed, powerful, gifted teachers on planet Earth. And she's all over the place. Um, She's all over the place. Uh, she was just in Australia. You can see her on television uh, almost every Wednesday. And I love when she tells stories about her pastor. That's my favorite part because I feel like I'm <laughs> famous by proxy. It's, uh, but uh, she has an incredible gift and she wants to be a part of this body and building it up. And so uh, early on, she said, I want to... I I just want to make a deposit in the women of our church. And so we built Rise around that desire of hers. And so we just have it a few times a year. And so if you are a female, raise your hand if you are a female, just a little quiz. Um, then we want you there this Tuesday night. It's just for ladies. It's an unbelievable time. She brings a fresh word every time. Uh, it's just so grateful. We're going to pray and you're going to worship. And uh, Beth's going to bring, a, bring an amazing uh, word that will be timely. It's also a great opportunity for those ladies in your life who maybe have had church background, but they haven't recently. It's a great introduction back into the church. Um, and so there are tickets out in the lobby uh, that uh, you can um, come around, uh, ladies, at the end, grab a ticket for you, some friends, uh, but make sure you're there with us on Tuesday night. But men, you are often the obstacle to every good thing in your lady's life. And so I need you to raise your hand, men. Even if you're not married, just raise your hand if you don't have a lady. I promise. Come on, repeat after me. Men, I promise. That I will be fine one evening alone with my children. So men, set your ladies free. Send her off to Bible study. And uh, if you are nervous about spending one evening with your kids by yourself, then you need to be a better dad. Uh, Colossians chapter 2. He says in verse uh, 8, the Apostle Paul, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority." About three years ago at this time, we knew we were going to start Bayou City Fellowship, but we need to make it legitimate, which means that we needed to register with the IRS. And if you've ever had any dealings with the IRS, then you know uh, that reading their information is like reading the dictionary in a foreign language. And every time I would read it, I couldn't tell if like, it was simple or I was going to go to jail. I knew there was just, it was one or the other. 
And so I was telling a friend how difficult it was to really understand exactly what we needed to do. And he had finance in his background. And he says, oh, it's not a big deal. You can actually pay a firm to do it for you. And I'm like, I like that. And so he recommended a, a, a firm and it sounded good to me. I didn't know any better. And so I, I called this organization. They were lawyers, in fact. And, and uh, they interviewed me for about 20 minutes, got all the information about our church. And they said, in two weeks, we'll send you an envelope. It will have everything that you need in it. All you need to do is read over it and send it back to the IRS and you're good to go. And that sounded good to me. And sure enough, about two weeks to the day that they said, uh, an envelope comes, it's official, it's sealed. And, and I open it up and it's our forms and ready to go. And I start reading through it. I get halfway uh, down the page and it says the vision of Bayou City Fellowship is. Now I'm thinking this is a big moment. We haven't actually at this point really said it out loud to the whole world among a handful of us. We've talked about it, but this is like our big coming out moment. We're declaring ourselves to the United States government. You know, I want to get this right. Plus, I don't want to go to jail. And so I'm thinking that this is a spiritual moment. The vision of Bayou City Fellowship is to give out coats at Christmas and to obey the Ten Commandments. So I pick up the phone. I call those sweet, beloved, blessed lawyers. And I say, uh, Curtis Jones, Houston, Texas here, Bayou City Fellowship. I just got my packet in the mail. Looks good. Font is nice. Nice (laughs) font. I got a few questions for you. Question number one. What? Uh, Question number two. Uh, Listen, nobody is more pro Ten Commandments than me. Like, pro, thank you God for them, hopefully obeyed them. If I didn't confess it, I mean, I feel bad. Pro Ten Commandments. Cannot state that enough. Pro Ten Commandments. Also, pro coats. (laughs) But, I don't know if you've looked at the address that you sent this material to. We live in Houston, Texas. So... If you had said we will give out light jackets at Christmas, then maybe someone would believe that this is the heartbeat of our ministry. But I don't think anybody's going to buy this. And, and, you know, my next question is, is like, where did you get all this information? They're like, oh, we made it up. Like, what do you mean you made it up? They're like, oh, yeah, they don't read it anyway. It'd be fine. They just look for a few pieces of information and that you have it. It'd be fine. They don't read it. It's the IRS. They got other things to do. And I'm like, well, you know, my last question, uh, did you already cash my check? They did. We didn't get our money back. About that same time, you know, Amanda and I knew that we wanted to start this church, but that doesn't mean that you should. Just because you want to do something doesn't mean that you should. And, and uh, we wanted to be assessed. I mean, you know, we wanted somebody to look at us, thumb through our lives, and decide if we were up to the task, meaning Amanda wanted to do all these things. I knew I was up to the task because I'm humble. And... Uh, <laughs> So we uh, signed up with this organization and they ask you just a ton of questions. You have to write everything down. You got to write your strengths down. You got to write your weaknesses down, like your real weaknesses, not those like job application weaknesses that actually make you sound good, like real weaknesses. And they're asking Amanda, what's his strengths and weaknesses? And they asked me, what's her strengths and weaknesses? I was like, she doesn't have any weaknesses. She's perfect because I've been married for a few years now. Um, I know that you're not allowed to say that stuff out loud. Uh, But... So we fill out all this information about ourselves and we send it in. The next step in the process is on a Friday morning, we're sitting at this long table. Amanda and I are on one side and there are four pastors 
on the other side. They all have experience. They've done this before. And their job is to thumb through our lives based on the information that we've given them and the questions that they're going to ask to decide once and for all if we are up to the task. One of the first questions they ask, what will the vision of this church be? I'm like, that's easy. Coats at Christmas. (laughs) No. I didn't say that. I did say that's easy. The vision of this church is Jesus. But you ever have somebody roll their eyes at you without actually rolling their eyes at you? And listen, I get it. I get it. I was not the first pastoral candidate to sit across the table from them. And they asked the question, what's the vision for the church? And the guy's like, I don't know. I just wanted to plant a church. Jesus, I guess that sounds like a good answer. I get why they would be skeptical. But then the next question was, besides Jesus, what is the vision of this church? Listen, whether you've been a church for three years or one day or 300 years, whether you've been a Christian for three days or three weeks, three months or 30 years, everything in this world wants to plant into your mind that there is something important besides Jesus. And what Colossians, the entire book of Colossians is all about is hopefully what this church is all about and hopefully what my life is all about from this moment to my last moment. I want to convince people this church exists to convince people and the book of Colossians exists to people, exists to tell people that Jesus is a sufficient vision for your life. And when you and I start adding things besides Jesus is where our life gets dysfunctional, where this isn't fun anymore. And so Paul, in a spirit of trying to protect pure and sincere desire for Jesus, is going to offer us three warnings today. So if you're going to write something down, these would be good things to write down. Number one, beware of religious talk without action. Beware of religious talk without action. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now that word empty, it it probably should be applied to both the word deceit and philosophy. It's kind of one idea there together. Empty philosophy and empty deceit. Because there's nothing wrong with philosophy. Philosophy literally means a love for wisdom, which the Bible would affirm. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. Having wisdom. If you don't have wisdom, that's where your life gets messed up. So it's not against philosophy, it's not against theology, it's not against thinking critically. What it is against is philosophy and theology that doesn't translate into any kind of change in you. A theology that just exists in conversation is bad theology. Whether it's correct or not. A philosophy that does not make its way into the way that you treat people and live your life and order your life, the things that you do and don't do, is bad philosophy, even if it's correct. I want you to turn a few pages to the left of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This will just affirm what we're saying. The Apostle Paul, writing a separate letter to the people in Corinth, 
This is a real simple verse. One sentence. Verse 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. The kingdom of God does not exist in talk, but in power. So here's the question that we need to ask ourselves, and I'll ask myself first after reading this verse. Do you sound more faithful than you actually are? When people listen to you, do they hear a faithfulness coming from you that you could not back up with your actual life? Because the kingdom of God does not exist in talk, but in power. That's empty philosophy and empty deceit. And it happens all the time in church. We're always promoting an inflated version of ourselves. The way I know this is because we have code words in the church. If this is your first time in church or first time in a long time, I'm just going to help you out right from the beginning. Every religious person knows about these code words. We just don't like to say them out loud, but that's what we're going to do here. Here's a couple of code words that maybe you've heard before. I've been praying is code word for I prayed about it once and I thought about it a lot. I'm blessed. Can be, not always, but I'm blessed can be code word for life is really hard right now, but I'm not about to admit that to you. The Bible says is code word for I heard someone say the Bible says. (laughs) And I've been praying for you is code word for I've been talking about you. But we would never say those things out loud. We like to say the, the more spiritual sounding version because it gets us credit. It promotes a version of ourself that looks good but isn't actually true. I mean, what has more weight? You know, honey, I've really been thinking about it and I'd really like to buy a boat. Or, man, I've been really praying about it. And, you know, like, I don't know why God wants us to buy a boat, but he does. You know? The kingdom of God is not consistent talk, but in power. What's the percentage of your life? Spiritual talk or spiritual power? Because when the equation leans towards spiritual talk, that talk chokes out sincere faith in Jesus. You know why? Because it's easy to talk. The hardest thing that I've had to do as a pastor of this church is to protect our singular vision of Jesus. You'd think that that would not be a hard thing to do, but it's the hardest thing that I have to do. The hardest thing you will have to do is to protect your single-mindedness commitment to Jesus Christ because everyone wants to plant inside of you besides Jesus. What is your life about? And that talk is so much easier and fortifying your life around the vision that matters most. Warning number two, beware of empty religious tradition. Beware of empty religious tradition. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition. Now, Colossae was in a very unique situation because... In Colossae at this time, you have a melting pot of different faiths. Because the gospel comes into this city, this Roman city, 
the pure message of Jesus. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return. And the people there, they believe in Jesus. But there was also Judaism in that town. That's the, the religion that Jesus actually practiced. But within Judaism, Jesus is inviting everyone to see him at, as the peak of that Judaism. But not everybody saw that. They just saw the traditions that were handed down to them. And in that same city, it's a Roman city, so you have all these different gods and goddesses and all these idols. And so it was really a melting pot. And so when Paul mentions human tradition here, he's specifically aiming at this Judaism. This Judaism that would promote tradition uh, instead of promoting Jesus. And what these teachers are doing is they're saying, you need Jesus and this. Together is the perfect combination. But Paul says, no, the, the one vision is enough. Jesus actually addressed this himself. I want you to turn to the left to Mark Chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, it's going to mention the scribes here. The scribes in first century Israel were in charge of the oral tradition. See, they had the law. And the law was what we refer to as the Old Testament and specifically the first five books of the Old Testament. So they had God's word just like we have God's word. But one of the unique things about the scripture is it tells us what to do, but it doesn't always command us how to do it. So the scripture tells us to love God with all our hearts, minds, and strengths and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's a command. We're responsible for obeying that. But it doesn't lay out for us and specifically you should do this and specifically you should do this. Well, that's hard for some of us. And so what some of us prefer is to add another law on top of the law that we already received. I don't want to not love God with all my heart. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a law is that at six o'clock every morning, I'm going to be in the scripture. Or I'm going to set up a law for this to protect me from breaking the original law. So you can imagine generation after generation after generation, you have the law that God gave them, plus all this oral tradition mounting up. So by the time Jesus comes on the scene, it was a heavy burden that was laid on the backs of the people of Israel. And the scribes, they were the ones who were in charge of this because where the law was silent, one author said, the oral tradition spoke loudly. So a lot of burden on the people. And here's what Jesus says in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. So remember these scribes, they're the ones in charge of this oral tradition. But they're from Jerusalem. They're not from some podunk, podunk town. They're not from way out in the village. They're not way out in the countryside. They are in Jerusalem, which means they were elite, which means they were trained. They spent time in the temple. These were professionals who had come for Jesus. Verse 2. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. Now that doesn't sound like the tradition of the elders. That sounds like the tradition of moms everywhere, right? Wash your hands before you eat. But for them, the washing of hands, it wasn't about physical cleanliness. It was about spiritual cleanliness. See, they believe when they went to the marketplace that they came back defiled and spiritually unclean. But before they sat down at their own tables, which they believed were holy because they were the holy people of God, they needed to be spiritually clean, not just physically clean. Verse 5. And there were many other traditions that they observed, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? 
And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus has this confrontation about what is required to follow the law of God and the commandments of men or to just follow the law of God. Now it mentions here the word wash and you may see a little footnote in your Bible if you go down the page. It it says literally wash with a fist. It sounds kind of strange. So I want to show you what it means to wash with a fist. If you take your left hand and you put it out flat for me, this is an all skate kinetic learning right here. I, th- I think I'm using that word right. I'm not sure. Uh, I grew up in Missouri, so the English language has not fully morphed up there. Um, <laughs> flat hand. Everybody got your flat hand? And then take your other hand and make a fist and then lay it down in your hand and then just open it very gently, just where you can just see a few, a few of the cracks uh, through your right fist. This is what it means to wash uh, your hands um, ceremonially. So what they would do is they would pour a little water in the hand because in our culture we have plenty of water and so you just get right in there and use as much as you want. But in their culture, water was a little bit more precious and so they try to conserve it. So this is a way that you can wash your hands without using uh, very much water to be as efficient as possible. And so they'd pour the water in and they could wash their hands and be ceremonially clean. Now listen, can you imagine judging someone's righteousness based on this? Can you imagine deciding if someone was godly and loved God and obeyed God based on this? This seems ridiculous, doesn't it? But it's just because it's not our tradition. We have all kinds of other traditions. All kinds of other things that we use to determine outside of the scripture whether somebody actually loves and obeys and honors Jesus. See, we ignore the meaning and we elevate the practice. I'll give you one weird way that, that this is uh, fleshed out in my life. Uh, it's in tucking my kids into bed, which seems like a strange way to judge somebody's godliness, doesn't it? But, um, you know, I have two children. Jackson is eight and Annabeth is five. And the bedtime, man, that's like, that's it. Like, you can't skip that in my house or it's like World War Three. Like, it's serious. Like, they don't go to bed until the tuck-in has happened. And tucking them in is a perfect opportunity to, to pray together and just do all that spiritual stuff, which we are responsible for because we're supposed to train up our children in the way of Jesus. Absolutely. And that's a good thing. But, uh, uh, you know, we have a lot of friends who are our age and they have kids in similar life stage. And the, the great thing about that is that when it's hard for us, it's probably also hard for them or it's just been hard for them. And there's a lot of camaraderie in that. But the other, the difficult part about having friends all the kind of the same life stage is that, you know, there are a lot of people to compare yourself to. Because the traditions of men are not carried on just for tradition's sake. It, they're carried on because we compare ourselves to one another. And if one person carries on the tradition and I'm not, it means that they are something and maybe I'm not. And so I'm listening to all these other moms and dads and they're like, man, our bedtime routine is just awesome right now. We've been studying with the kids, the book of Ezekiel. Like it's just been just just walking through the scripture with them. Man, it's beautiful. um, We're memorizing it with them. I mean, we're only, you know, in chapter 10 right now. We got 30 more chapters to go, but I think they're gonna get it by the end of the month. It's gonna be awesome. You know, or... 
Yeah, every night, every night, my little ones, they get down on their knees and they pray for the prime ministers of Europe that they would have just God's heart and revival would come to them. So revival comes to the nations of Europe, that historic place. My little ones, my kindergartner, lifting up the prime minister of France and all of his issues right now. This is beautiful. I'm like, oh gosh, I'm a terrible parent. Oh my. Because I tried, I tried to do that. I was at one time teaching Jackson, uh, he was younger, this was about four, he was probably four, the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. I don't even know what that is, but I found it on the internet and it looked good. So I'm like, let's memorize this. It's 50 pages, but we can do it. And he was into it for about 10 seconds. And then I was into it for about, you know, 10 more days. But then I started looking at faith in Jesus through the eyes of my children and what it must be like for them because pastors' children do not have a tremendous track record. You know what I found? I found that uh, almost every time that we were having dinner with somebody, they were from the church. Doesn't mean that we had dinner because of the church, but they just go here because people that we love go here. We love everybody here. We were having dinner and having a good time. But when you're with church people and you know, they're with the pastor, what do we talk about? We talk about church stuff. I started noticing that anytime that I was leaving my house after the kids got home from school, it wasn't to go and play golf, which I wish it was, or it wasn't to go and see the Rockets play and have awesome season tickets because I don't. But if you do, I'm willing to come with you. <laughs> when I was leaving my house after my kids got home, it was to go and do church stuff. When Amanda is gone, 80% of the time, it's for church stuff. I made a commitment to myself, I think, that I didn't want the godliest eight-year-old on the planet. I don't want the most impressive spiritual five-year-old. I want Jackson and Annabeth to graduate from college with a degree, hello, and with a sincere and pure-hearted love for Jesus. And I want them to come home from college, God willing, and find their place right here in this house and work all the days of their lives. So I can't burn them out when they're eight and five. But that's a unique position that I am in and maybe you're not in. And what God is continually having to teach me is when I offer up someone else's faithfulness, it destroys me on the inside. Some of us are burnt out, just burnt out. And you're weary of all the burdens. And maybe what we didn't know is Jesus is not the one who have laid these burdens on you. He laid a burden on you that he said was light and easy, but it's men, men like me pastors like me to validate my own godliness will lay laws on you. And year after year after year after year after year, it becomes more than we can bear. And so we quit or we come and don't mean it. And it's just a tradition of men and our hearts are far from God. So you worry about offering up the faithfulness that God has asked and required from you. And you let the person next to you and down the road for you be accountable for their own life and you be accountable for yours. Then the last warning, and this is where we'll end. Beware 
of demonic influence. Beware of demonic influence. And I know that feels like a change of gears because we had a nice little theme going. But that's what Paul does. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to elemental spirits of the world. Now these elemental spirits, when Paul refers to spirits in his other writings, most of the time he is referring to demons. And one of the commentators, expert in interpreting the scripture, he referred to these as local deities. Now remember Colossae was a, a Roman town. And, and so they would have had all the Greek and Roman goddesses. So there would have been statues of Zeus and Aphrodite and all those goddesses and gods represented there. And you may be like, well, those are just statues. Those gods are not real. But then you read in the Bible stories like in Exodus chapter seven, God has sent Moses, his brother Aaron into Pharaoh because Moses has given the message to let my people go. And as a demonstration of God's power, Aaron throws down his staff. You remember what happens? The staff turns into a snake. Pharaoh, he summons his magicians, which were like the priests of the idols of Egypt. You can go to Egypt today and you can see all of their idols, which are still around from ancient history. So he goes and gets his magicians, these priests for these idols, and they bring staffs too. And you know what? They throw their staffs on the ground and they turn to snakes too. So if idols are just mortar and cement and wood, you tell me how they can turn staffs into snakes except for maybe behind our idols are things that we would not like to think about or speak about these are the elemental spirits that paul is referring to and listen satan and the demons who are under his authority i doubt their sincere and committed plan for your life is to turn you into an atheist Maybe some of us told that line of skepticism and we could go either way, but I'm guessing for most of us, we're so grounded in this faith that uh, there wouldn't, we can't imagine a day when we would not even believe that God exists. But they don't care. What they're more likely to tempt you to do is for you to keep doing the same things that you've been doing and just not mean it anymore. They don't care if you read the Bible, as long as you don't mean it. They don't care if you come to church, as long as you don't mean it. They don't care if you volunteer or serve, as long as you don't mean it. These elemental spirits would love to replace your sincere faith for Jesus with a religion that you don't really care about, but feel bound to honor. And then look what it says in verse nine. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. There could be a thousand sermons launched out of those two verses. But for time's sake and brevity's sake today, here's what those verses mean. In Jesus is the full measure of God. There is nothing that lacks in Jesus that needs to be made up with religion. No practice or commandment of men needs to complete what Jesus is lacking. He has the full measure of God and you have the full measure of Jesus. There is nothing that Jesus himself cannot supply to you, that empty tradition, 
or empty words couldn't make up for. Jesus is a sufficient vision for your life and for this church. Let's pray together.